You're listening to Stories from Montreal, a podcast to highlight the voices and work of Concordia University's undergraduate sociology and anthropology departments. All of our guests have been featured authors in our academic journal of the same name, Stories from Montreal. I would like to begin by acknowledging that Concordia University is on unceded Indigenous lands, and the Genigahaga Nation is recognized as the custodians of the land and waters. And Jojage, Montreal, is historically known as a gathering place for many First Nations. Today I'll be chatting with Mar Argaman about her paper, Mediating Identity Through an Instagram Filter, the nuances of Instagram use among Montreal's undergraduate students. Mar Argaman is a Concordia University anthropology graduate who is interested in exploring identity, social media, human connection, and what lies at their intersection. Apart from her innate interest in human interaction, she enjoys cooking, dancing, appreciating nature, and attempting to put mindfulness before productivity. Hi, Mar. How are you doing? Hello. I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. Thank you for being part of this. Of course. This is wonderful. Instagram is easily one of the most popular social media applications and I feel like perhaps it's seen the most drastic shift in its function you know going from simply a photo sharing app to a place where you can buy frog jeans and vintage lamps alongside being advertised like flat tummy tea by an influencer but that's not necessarily what your research talks about would you be able to talk a little bit more about what you're investigating yes for sure so I mean what sparked my interest initially was this thing that kept happening to me where I would meet someone in person and then I would see their Instagram or vice versa. And there was just such a big dissonance between the two for some reason. And that was always so fascinating and strange to me. I just think Instagram has so much to offer in terms of how it lets its users really tell a story and create a specific narrative through what they post and how they use the app. Um, and I just think it's so great in that way. And I really wanted to look at that more closely. So you were kind of looking at like the, the links between like identity formation and Instagram. Yeah, exactly. So the, the questions that I was really focusing on at first were what role does Instagram play in its users processes of self-expression, exploration, uh, construction, negotiation, and renegotiation, because it's kind of a process that happens every time you're using the app. So it's constantly happening. Um, I also wanted to look at how the inevitable curation of an online persona uh, on Instagram can feed into your perception of yourself and how you navigate different aspects of your identities. Because I really think that there's no way to be on Instagram without curating somewhat of an online persona, even if you're not doing it intentionally. I think it's just going to happen. And I was really interested in looking at that. Um, and also looking at just Instagram as a tool, because I think that, you know, it can definitely be harmful and damaging in a lot of ways, but I think it can also be a really powerful tool. And I wanted to see how Instagram's features can facilitate the self-exploration and self-presentation. Could you explain like how you constructed your, your research study then? Yeah. So I thought it would make the most sense to do both in-person ethnography and also digital ethnography. Um, and because the nature of this research is so intimate and so personal, my participant observation was like 
super casual. It was really just me hanging out with my um, participants and getting to know them better and um, finding out how they see themselves and what matters to them and what makes them feel seen and heard and all that kind of stuff. And then also, of course, asking them about how they use Instagram and their relationship with Instagram and how that's changed maybe over the years um, and what it means to them to have an online persona and to maintain this this persona. Um, and as for my digital ethnography, that was pretty much me stalking them on Instagram <laughs> for a few months. And then also while I was with them in person, going through their Instagram with them um, and asking the questions about what they post and why, who they follow, why they follow them, um, which pages they interact with the most, which features they use the most, um, and kind of allowing our discussion of their online persona guide our discussion of their offline self and how the two are related. So what did you end up finding about this connection between like the development of one's identity through the use of Instagram? Yeah, so I'm going to use a story to illustrate this because one of my participants' experiences, I think it's a great example of this. Basically, he grew up in a small conservative town that felt really repressive to him and he felt isolated from everyone around him. They didn't really, he couldn't relate to them, uh, especially as a gay man with no queer representation around him. So through this isolation, he, he kind of turned to the internet and found these amazing online communities on Instagram and on Tumblr that allowed him to feel secure in portraying an authentic version of himself when, you know, in person, he kind of felt like, you know, kind of just having to live up to people's expectations and standards and what they deemed acceptable and normal. Um, and through this online community, he also was able to learn about what his queerness meant to him by seeing other queer people posting about their experiences um, and expressing their queerness online. He was kind of able to take different parts of this, parts of you know the, the content that he consumed, whatever he felt was important to him and kind of curate his own ideal version of himself that he was able to digitally enact on Instagram. And having the power to do that is what actually led him to growing into this ideal version of himself, both offline and online. So it's really cool to see how um, an online persona can transform your offline self by giving you like freedom to, to be a part of yourself that a version of yourself that you feel like you can't be offline. Yeah, and you know, the, things like Instagram and Tumblr and just the internet in general, like, you know, 30 years ago without those things, um, people, it was much harder to figure out your identity as quickly as it is now because, you know, if you were, if you happen to be in a place without, you know, the meeting spaces or the literature available to you, it just took much longer to find yourself in that way. And it's such a beautiful thing that we have access to that now. So people don't have to be confused or feel lost for as long. Yeah, that's honestly. And I mean, of course, while I was conducting my research by that point, he had already, he's comfortable with who he is and with his queerness, both online and offline. And there isn't really a dissonance between those two um, versions of himself but back then it was super important for him to have that 
online community to be able to really find himself. So then definitely this online self has a direct translation and a direct influence on your offline self's persona. But you also mentioned that there was a period of dissonance where the identity that he was portraying or that anyone, I guess, is portraying online didn't match who they were on offline for whatever kind of Mm -hmm. social constraints or for whatever reason. Do you think it would have a conflicting effect on one's self-identity, like perception of self, to have this dissonance between online and offline? For sure. I think, well, yeah, a big reason why I was interested in looking at this was, again, like seeing, meeting someone in person and then their online persona is so clearly, meticulously curated to just be this kind of taking all the best, quote unquote, best parts of themselves and putting them online without really having any of their authentic self. I mean, that's what it seems like. But with all my participants, I didn't really find that there was a dissonance in that way. And um, I mean, they can, each of them looking back on how they used to use Instagram were able to recognize that dissonance and kind of see that they were maybe trying to be someone who they didn't felt like they were, um, trying to be a version of themselves that they thought others would be more comfortable with. But then kind of as they grew into themselves and their identities, they were able to portray that through their online persona. To be able to express queerness online, do you think that, that we can read a different kind of agency in the ways that queer people use social media, specifically Instagram, compared to, I guess, heterosexual people? Definitely. I'm going to talk about another one of my participants who's a queer woman. She also uh, grew up in a pretty restrictive, homophobic environment. Um, and through that, she, of course, internalized some of this. And um, she's still unlearning these, this like harmful thought process that can come from from being socialized in an environment like this um but she talked about how grateful she was for instagram and for everything that it's done for her and her queer identity and um how much it helped her grow into herself as a queer woman and she really she's not sure if she would have been able to do that without instagram um because pretty much she was able to concretize her queerness by presenting herself in a way that's like unambiguously, unmistakably queer and uh, getting positive feedback and validation from people who she felt inspired by really made her feel secure in her queerness um, and allowed herself to, to see herself and see her queerness through a loving and accepting and praising gaze rather than through a judgmental gaze, which is what she had been used to growing up. So that was really important for her and her journey growing into her queerness uh, and feeling secure and kind of reinforcing her queer identity by posting pictures of herself as a queer woman. Right. Like choosing how you want to be perceived or how you are presenting yourself to be perceived. I mean, you can't really choose, like you can't really control how other people perceive you, but using these signifiers that make you feel unapologetically queer. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about how often like our our identities are, you know, an amalgamation of all these lived experiences, people we interact with and also online. But now that 
you know, we're in a pandemic and the fact that we've had to spend so much time online, but with ourselves as well, do you think that that's had an effect on people's processes of navigating their, their sexual and, and gender identities? Yes, a hundred percent. And I actually, um, I saw a post on Instagram, of course, talking about how quarantine may be changing your relationship with your gender identity, your gender expression, your sexuality. Uh, your body image, all these things. And I thought back to one of my participants who actually, during the pandemic, came to terms with their non-binary identity. Um, and during our conversation, they just they explained to me how they were sort of forced to experience their their body and their gender in a way that was so much more material and more embodied because there wasn't like this option of going outside and kind of distracting yourself with the outside world. And they told me that just being confronted by the possibilities of gender on social media and not being able to avoid or escape this really made them sit and think about what that meant to them and, and um, coming to terms with their non-binary gender identity for them, it's realizing that there's an alternate possibility of living and expressing themselves and their gender through this fluidity uh, and through the concept of non-binary. And they really, they realize that this has been part of them for a long, long time. And it's just kind of surfaced to now because they've been able to connect the dots and see that they have felt disconnected from their body and from their conception of femininity. Um, and also by by adjusting who they follow on Instagram and social media to follow more queer, trans, non-binary voices has really helped them connect with their own gender. So that's super beautiful. And I'm so happy that they shared that with me because that really does illustrate how, how my research findings have really transformed and how COVID has had an effect on that. Yeah, that is such a positive outcome to being forced to, to self-reflect. And it's almost like other people's like, authenticity is acting as, a, as like a mirror for you to like look at yourself and see yourself in it or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they, they told me that the reason they came to terms with their non-binary gender identities is because they saw a post on Instagram that said um, that if you're thinking about whether or not you're non-binary, and this is something that you've been thinking about, for a while then you're probably non-binary and that really for them was like yeah okay there's can't run away let me just sit in this and feel it and experience it um yeah just being at home and being forced to really live fully in your body I think for a lot of us has had some good some bad but um for them it, it was super transformative and I'm so happy for them yeah what a validating post mm -hmm. Then as we were just talking about how you can't really control how others perceive you, but you can control how, how you present yourself. And going back to your participant who had grown up in um, a really patriarchal, heteronormative environment. I mean, to a certain degree, we all have because we live in that kind of society. But how does the the curation process of posting on Instagram, which you can't really escape from because you, you do choose what to post and when to post it. How can that be used to disrupt or reverse this, these heteronormative patriarchal gazes? Yeah, curating your identity online as someone whose identity is so 
politicized and is can be polarizing um, for some reason. It can actually, I mean, one of my participants, she talked about how she sees um, this online curation and expression of queerness as her own way of disrupting and challenging the heteronormative patriarchal values that marked her upbringing. Um, because, you know, a lot of the people that she grew up with follow her still. So, you know, not only does she post, does she express her queerness online, but she also posts a lot about social justice and kind of bringing awareness to these issues that, you know, sometimes she gets replies that thank her for educating them on these topics. But sometimes, you know, it's not always positive and um just I mean it helps her feeling like she's able to challenge these norms in a way helps her just feel even more secure in her own queerness and more comfortable with the way that she's presenting herself absolutely so I really want to talk about the finsta and the close friends list you know they're thought of as being more authentic than the the general feed um do you think there's ever a way to be truly unfiltered Mm. I mean it's actually it's funny because one of my participants when we were talking I remember him saying that uh when he goes on Finsta he is completely unfiltered like he for him it's like if you're trying to be someone on your Finstagram then what are you doing like what's the point so I mean I think for me I don't have a Finsta I only have a close friend's um story list uh, and for me, I definitely, I don't think it's unfiltered. I think there's still an audience, even if it's an audience that you have hand selected and that are people who are, who you're close with and who you feel comfortable around. I think there can still be an element of trying to, even when you're, you know, you're with your, your friends, sometimes there is still um, an element of presenting yourself in a way that you want to be perceived, even by those you love. So I do think it's definitely uh, a more unfiltered and more authentic version of yourself, but I'm not sure that it can ever really be fully unfiltered. But honestly, I think this is my favorite part of my research because I've just been so fascinated by Finsta and I really wanted to, to take a closer look at it. And it was really interesting to see how my participants used Finsta and the close friends feature also to kind of have varying degrees of intimacy and privacy and vulnerability on Instagram. Yeah, I had a Finsta briefly for like a year, a couple years ago, but it definitely feels like, um, I mean, it's a significantly smaller pool of people who you allow to follow you because usually they're private. And then, yeah, it just feels like you can kind of be a bit messier, a bit more candid I guess Mm -hmm. and now that I'm seeing in my I guess in my friend group I guess seeing less finstas we still have like the close friends list and Mm -hmm. yeah for me it feels like a very like intimate space but sometimes I notice that I'm on certain people's close friends list and I'm like are we there yet (laughs) (laughs) yes for sure I'm like was this a mistake I think this was a mistake but and it's actually it's so interesting because one of my participants um, has, well, had, I don't know if they still have, but he had a Finsta and also 
a close friends list and he used them in two totally different ways. So for his Finsta, that's where it was really like his actual close friends um, and where he would just post about like random personal stuff, funny pictures, memes, um, traumatic events, personal stories, all that kind of stuff. And he would use his Finsta to engage with all his close friends on like a personal level. And then for his close friends, um, it was basically just people who he had um, been sexually intimate with. And on that, he would just post like sexually explicit pictures and nudes. And to him, his Finsta was so much more intimate than his close friends, just because of how he sees his own body. And to him, like that platonic intimacy was just so much more intimate than sexual intimacy. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think that's something that a lot of people can relate to, like being vulnerable, like emotionally vulnerable is Mm -hmm. for a lot of people much deeper and closer than being vulnerable in that way that people are like seeing your body. And being able to create these different online spaces for yourself based on those different degrees or different kinds of intimacy um, is really powerful. Yeah. I don't have a, like my Finsta is not active anymore, but it's still like, I haven't deactivated it. And sometimes I like look back at it and then I, I really like value the archive feature that Instagram has for that. And I think you mentioned in your paper that a lot of people use this archive feature as like a, a digital journal or a digital memory box. What role do you like see as this archive playing in like the negotiation of one's identity? Yeah, I think that being able to look back at these archived embodied experiences, um, even if it's, I mean, it can be kind of like just for fun or just to look back and see like, whoa, I changed. But um, it can also be a really powerful tool, um, which I, I'll illustrate through one of my participants' experiences. She told me that she would use the archive feature to go back and look at her life during her abusive relationship a few years ago and kind of seeing how she presented herself online and being able to reflectively Uh, and retroactively recognize what her personal state of unhappiness and misery looks like and being able to recognize that now um, and looking back at those pictures and being able to remember how she was feeling and what she was thinking um, and what she wasn't able to realize then that she now realizes for her that's really brought her closer to herself and she's also used this archived stories feature to help her with her body dysmorphia, which she's been dealing with since she was a teenager. So being able to look back through all these stories and seeing how her body changed both through this abusive relationship and after and and just the way that her body changed over time, this archive feature makes these changes tangible. So that's also really helped her deal with, with her relationship with her body uh, in the offline world and I mean do you think that this is even like an even more important feature like in the light of the current pandemic where we're severely restricted in our ability to experience new things outside of like the day-to-day living in our apartment oh yeah I've been just looking back at these 
archive embodied experiences now during COVID has been both like really therapeutic and cathartic but also pretty painful at times. It's just, it's so weird to confront this past version of myself that hasn't yet experienced the pandemic and living vicariously through this past me, through these archived stories. And it's fun to look back on these memories with my friends, you know, since we can't really see each other anymore. Um, so it definitely has helped us connect in that way, but it it is also really hard to yeah be confronted with that past self it's for sure bittersweet have been there and what's so like what's so interesting is like when you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation about you know this online identity that we've created is especially in the beginning your idealized self that you kind of translate into your offline persona And now, like through like looking at these past memories, like pre-COVID, yeah, like you said, living vicariously through your past self, but your past self also becomes your idealized self. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very, very weird. Yeah, I think you kind of touched on this, but is there anything like specifically that made you really want to research this topic? Yeah, there was actually, there's an article I read um, for one of my classes. So it's called My So-Called Instagram Life, and it's written by Clara Dollar. And for some reason, this article, I don't know, it really just stuck with me. And so the author basically talks about how she had curated this online persona that was so different from her authentic self. And it was for the attention and validation of a man. And uh, I think that a lot of People, a lot of us are definitely guilty of this to some extent, um, you know, transforming us ourselves into maybe a version of ourselves that we think someone else would want us to be. So that's really, I don't know, to me, that's kind of what made me start to think more about Instagram and how I use Instagram. Um, and I think to a lot of people, even if they don't see it as something that is important to them, I just think the fact that we all use it so often you know it definitely has an effect on us even when you're not thinking about it so yeah I really wanted to dive deeper into how Instagram can be used as a tool to help you see yourself and negotiate your own identity yeah and I I think that that's really cool because I mean a lot of the think pieces or like writing about Instagram is overtly negative like it's rotting the kids brains Mm mm-hmm because, you know, I, I do, I agree, it can definitely be harmful. And, um, and yeah, I've really just been trying to practice mindfulness, but also, you know, offline, but also online. I don't think that the two have to be mutually exclusive. I think that there's definitely a way to use Instagram as a tool to help yourself rather than as something to distract yourself. But also you can use it as both, which is what I do. Well, more. thanks so much for talking with me. But I have one last question for you. Um, what's next for you as researcher, as person? Well, I am currently working on some side projects related to UX design. Um, I have been conducting some research. Um, most recently, uh, I was looking at human connection during COVID and how people have been coping with either a lack of connection or you know, have they been feeling more connected to their neighbors and to themselves 
yeah, that's really what I'm interested in. What's next? No idea. You know, we'll find out together, but hopefully something good. And for now, just trying to enjoy little pockets of joy that exist in this COVID world. Well, um, best of luck with your research. And um, my takeaway from this is I'm going to try to be much more mindful. For sure. Even just this conversation, I'm sure will be helpful in that. Just thinking about how you use Instagram while you're on Instagram. Okay, more. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. read Moore's or any of our other featured authors' works, be sure to check out Sasu's socials for more information. Stories for Montreal was produced with support with, from the Concordia Student Union, the Sociology and Anthropology Student Union, and CJLO Radio Station. It was hosted and edited by me, Marie Figuereo. Our sound design is by Malta Leander, and artwork by Ali Brown. You can catch our show on the CJLO Airways at cjlo.com or on their channel 1690am every Wednesday at 4pm. You can also listen to us anywhere you like to stream podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.